BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Friday, February 21st, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And I want to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this podcast, Audible has a great offer, a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. You can support the show and get a free audiobook just by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So, Indre, when it comes to climate change, there are a lot of phony, bogus debates out there. They are ginned up by global warming skeptics and deniers who use them to sow doubt and thus to stop us from doing anything. I hate those kind of debates. I have zero tolerance for them. But then there are the real scientific debates over real issues that have arisen where important scientists who publish in the scientific literature regularly actually disagree, disagree earnestly, sometimes disagree fiercely. And those debates are pretty interesting. And one of them is over a topic that everybody who experiences weather, or in other words, everybody on Earth ought to care about. Because we've had a seriously off-the-wall winter this year, from droughts in California to insane snow on the U.S. East Coast and even in the South, to floods unprecedented in two centuries in the United Kingdom, to a balmy winter Olympics. And we have a very prominent climate scientist, Jennifer Francis of Rutgers University, who has published a theory about how climate change might be making these kind of things more likely to happen by seriously messing with what is known as the jet stream, the river of air that usually flows from west to east and carries with it much of our weather in the mid-latitudes of the planet. But not all scientists accept Francis's ideas. Um, these ideas are new. They're on the cutting edge right now, and they've been challenged. In fact, they were challenged in a recent letter to the journal Science. One of the authors of that letter is Kevin Trenberth, who's another acclaimed climate scientist, and he's at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and he's just not convinced about this jet stream theory, not yet anyway. So I went and did something that I don't think we get enough of. I had both Francis and Trenberth on the show, and we had them talk it out. We had them disagree. 
Here's a clip of Frances explaining her basic idea, which Trenberth then, of course, went on to critique. So my idea of how this rapidly warming Arctic and the jet stream might be connected kind of goes like this. So we call this rapid Arctic warming Arctic amplification because it's an amplification or increase in the global warming. And we know that as the Arctic warms much faster, it will weaken this temperature difference between the north and the south. And because that temperature difference drives or is one of the drivers of the west-to-east winds of the jet stream, then we expect to see the west-to-east winds get weaker as that temperature difference gets smaller. This is really exciting, Chris, because I think one of the talking points I often hear from global warming deniers is that there just isn't scientific consensus. And because there isn't consensus, the whole thing should just be thrown out. And of course, that's not true. So to actually get at the heart of where the disagreements are um, and what they entail, I think is really important. Well, yeah, what you have here is climate scientists in the wild observed. (laughs) And yeah, they don't sound anything like what global warming deniers make it sound like they're arguing about. They're not arguing about whether global warming is happening. They take that as rendered. They they know that very well. And that's not even interesting to them. What's interesting to them is things like, what is it doing to the jet stream? Oh, we're not sure. We don't have enough data. How do we get more data? When when will you know the theoretical predictions be validated by it? And that's that's what we get in a real scientific discussion. And the other thing that's exciting about this conversation is that we'll get a little bit more in depth into how the science actually works. I mean, how do you study climate change? It's been a bit of a mystery for me for a long time. So I'm excited to learn more about it. So that's what we have coming up. But first, Indre, we have a special occasion, I think, here on the show, because this doesn't happen that often. You have just released, I guess I'd call it a major work. It is a series of 24 lectures that you gave as part of the Great Courses series. And I think a lot of people will have heard of Great Courses. And your lectures are entitled 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. This has just come out. And I want our listeners to know a little bit more about it. So let's start off with a clip from Indre lecturing. How does DNA know how to make proteins? How does a seed become a flower if it doesn't have a brain? If complex behaviors of this kind can emerge from simple rules, seemingly without external direction, could the same kind of undirected process have produced life itself? Profound as these questions are, the implications of the new science of emergence don't stop there. Uh, So, Indre, first of all, does this mean that we can call you Professor Viscontis on the show from now on? Uh, Well, Chris, I think it means that you must call me Professor Viscontis. (laughs) No, of course, I'm just (laughs) kidding. (laughs) But yeah, no, it was really exciting for me to be invited uh, by the teaching company to do these lectures. And I have to say that it was really enjoyable to delve more deeply into all of these different topics. You'd, You'd think that we'd have to have a basic knowledge of every single one of these essential concepts, you know, from evolution to the Big Bang to string theory to, um, you know, emergence. But it wasn't until I started writing these lectures when I realized how much has changed in the last two decades and how important it is to have this foundation if you're going to be a science, you know, even even a lay person who's just interested in science. I'm I'm amazed by the breadth of what you've done. I mean, you cover everything, (laughs) you know, you cover evolution, you've got what is life, you've got, you know, string theory, quantum dynamics. I mean, how did you manage to synthesize it all? 
It was really hard. I have to say it was it was far more work than I anticipated when I first signed up for the project. Um, over the course of the 24 lectures, I wrote 100,000 words uh, in scripts. Wow. And I mean, so yeah, a book, basically. Yeah, a book, yeah. more than a book, uh, a pretty lot, yeah. you know. So and and it was really important, of course, that we get all the science exactly right. Um, and I'm sure there will be people who will write in and tell me where I got it wrong, which I'm excited about. But, um, you know, I worked really hard to make sure that it was the cutting edge. And it was hard. But I also found over the course of the lectures, how much now science really is integrative across disciplines. So, you know, when I started talking about electricity, for example, I used a lot of neuroscience to describe and to show you know, the applications of these different concepts. And that was really fun for me is to sort of see See the parallels between these concepts and how, you know, really we're working on big questions and we're using different tools to answer them. But fundamentally, you know, science is about answering these big questions. And so you have to know about all of these things in order to be, you know, be able to answer them. So on the last show, actually, and it's a common theme, we talked about how little Americans know about science, although it's not like people in other countries are a lot better. But it seems like with this course, with these lectures, if someone was to understand their content, that would count as science literate. I mean, this is, you basically, these are sort of the greatest hits, the things that are most essential. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we were, fi- when we were first um, picking the 12 essential scientific concepts, you know, it's a little bit of an arbitrary number because that's how, you know, the the company packages their courses in, in these these numbers. And of course, there are more than 12. And so we realized very quickly that we're hoping there will be, you know, season two of essential yeah. scientific concepts. Yeah, I want play tectonics. You didn't do play tectonics. You know, come on. No, we didn't do a lot of like <laughs> atmospheric science, I have to say. Yeah, um, but, you know, I felt that these were the concepts that when people think about science or they talk about science at a dinner party, these are the things you need to be familiar with. You know, you need to know at least the basics of string theory. You need to know what evolution is and what it means and how it differs just from, you know, what people, what most people, the mistakes that they make about, you know, evolution and, and what it means and how it's applied. Um, so, and, and genetics, of course, uh, is another big one where these days, you know, we understand that your genes change across your lifetime, which, you know, is, is a major revelation for a lot of people. So, so yeah, it was, it was hard to pick them, but I felt that, you know, at, at first pass, we were able to find 12 that, you know, everybody really should be familiar with really 10. And then there are a couple that were a little bit more fringe, like emergence, for example, which is this new field where we talk about how, um, you know, order can come out of chaos, how how little ants can form a colony and the colony can be smarter than any single one of the ants in a way that's really kind of mind boggling. So, you know, there is there's some new stuff there, too, that maybe people will say, well, emergence isn't an essential concept. Um, but I would argue that moving forward, it's going to become more and more essential. And so we need to know about it now. Well, it it sounds fascinating and I'm, you know, it sounds like a great piece of work. And I guess I would just ask, where can people find this? Tell them how to how to look this up. Yeah, so you can go to thegreatcourses.com and click on 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. Um, and there you can find either an audio download or a video download, um, or you can have them sent to you by snail mail. So as uh, DVDs or CDs, or conveniently, you can actually get it for free by making use of the offer from this week's sponsor, Audible. So the whole thing is available on Audible, and all you'd have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds, and you can download all 24 lectures. Well, great, Indra, and congratulations on this coming out. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Jennifer Francis and Kevin Trenberth. 
As I just mentioned, this week's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from, with topics ranging from science to classics to politics. They let you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. As listener to Inquiring Minds, they're offering you a free audiobook or a lecture series. And since my entire 24-part series called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts is now available on Audible, you could get that or, of course, anything else you'd like, for free by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Jennifer Francis, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me here. And Kevin Trenberth, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm happy to be here, Chris. Good morning. I am thrilled to have you both, two really top and important climate scientists who here disagree at least a little about things. And so I want to ask Jennifer uh, the first question. Let me let me start out with you. So we've had really wild weather this winter and how wild it is and precisely what its wildness is all about depends on where you are. If you're in California, it's drought. Um, if it's Alaska, it's heat. If it's the US, U.S. Northeast, then it's cold and snow. If it's the U.K., it's floods. Um, but they're all extreme and they're all connected by something called the jet stream. So to start off, I want to ask if you can tell us what the jet stream is, what it's been up to, and how your research suggests that this behavior may or may not be connected to climate change and the Arctic. And I understand that's a lot, but I think we need to have it on the table to have this discussion. It is a lot, and it's not simple. So I will do my best to uh, make it short and simple. <laughs> And um, I'd like to start out by saying that this is a very new area of research, how climate change and the jet stream are perhaps interlinked and, and how they're interlinked. I think it's, you know, there's no question that they are, but it's really getting down to the nitty gritty of, of just how climate change is going to affect um, the jet stream. And there's still very much we don't know. So, um, you know, this is certainly not a mature area of research. But going back to the beginning of where I think this all started, um, you know, I've been studying the Arctic climate system my whole career. And, you know, we've been watching things change gradually. But then in 2007, when the sea ice cover literally smashed the all-time record low for the summer minimum extent, it became pretty apparent to all of us who are studying the Arctic that the system as we knew it had fundamentally changed. And we started to see the Arctic warming much faster than anywhere else on Earth, which was a response to global warming that we expected to see. And we know that it's because of a variety of what we call positive feedbacks in the Arctic system. So as the globe warms, um, it melts ice, for example, and as that ice melts, it allows more of the sun's energy to enter the system, which causes more ice to melt. And so this is the positive feedback aspect that contributes to the Arctic warming so much faster than everywhere else. So these momentous changes that we started to see happening got me thinking and kind of got me going back to my roots in meteorology. And I realized that this rapid warming happening up there and the ice loss we were witnessing must have an effect on the large-scale circulation system or the atmospheric um, patterns beyond the Arctic, not just within the Arctic. Because the Arctic is really a fundamental component of the Earth's en uh, heat engine. And 
the difference in temperature between the Arctic and areas to the south in the mid-latitudes is a key driver of what we call the polar jet stream. So the jet stream is this fast-moving river of air high over our heads. Yeah, we fly in it. We've all been in it, right, if we've yep, been in planes. Yep. And, you know, one of the reasons it's there is because of this large difference in temperature between the Arctic and the mid-latitudes. So my idea of how this rapidly warming Arctic and the jet stream might be connected kind of goes like this. So we call this rapid Arctic warming Arctic amplification because it's an amplification or increase in the global warming. And we know that as the Arctic warms much faster, it will weaken this temperature difference between the north and the south. And because that temperature difference drives or is one of the drivers of the west-to-east winds of the jet stream, then we expect to see the west-to-east winds get weaker as that temperature difference gets smaller. And we know that when the jet stream gets weaker, it's more easily deflected by things like mountain ranges and other forces in its path. So it's you can think of a of a river flowing down a steep mountainside. When it's very steep, that river wants to flow fast and it goes quite straight. And then when it gets out to the coastal plain where the slope of the land is very shallow, it tends to take a much more meandering path from left to right and it's much more easily deflected by objects in its path. So the same kind of idea applies to the weaker jet stream. So we know that when it takes these larger swings north and south, basic atmospheric dynamics theory tells us that those large waves tend to move more slowly from west to east. And sometimes they even get stuck in place. And the reason that's important to us is because it's those waves in the jet stream that actually create the weather that we feel down here on the surface. So the storms, the high pressure areas, the dry, the warm, all of that in mid-latitude. So if those waves are moving more slowly from west to east, then that means that the weather that we're feeling down here on the surface seems like it's hanging around longer. And it just, in some cases, it seems to be stuck. And this winter is actually a really good example of that kind of a weather pattern. Uh, all around the northern hemisphere, the, the jet stream has basically been a, a very wavy pattern, especially in the Pacific and over the North American area. And this has caused the entire pattern to be pretty much locked in place since early December, right up until very recently. So this was the hypothesis that um, my colleague Steve Avers and I presented in a paper almost two years ago, along with some preliminary evidence suggesting that some of this behavior that we expected to see was actually starting to show up in the real atmosphere. And I just wanted to mention that one of the sort of new aspects of this work was the idea to try to measure how the shape of the waves in the jet stream on a daily basis were changing over time. And so this was something that people really hadn't looked at in that way before. And I just want to reiterate again that this is a very new line of research. I mentioned this paper just came out uh, two years ago. We've been working on it. And a bunch of people um, in other places now have kind of come along and are helping out trying to understand whether this hypothesis is, is true, if we can find evidence for it or not. And um, I'm pleased that it's generated so much discussion and interest. Um, it Usually these, a new idea like this in the research world um, doesn't get uh, quite 
this much attention until it's much more mature. So I, you know, I realize that there's still a lot of unknowns. There's probably more unknowns than knowns at this point, but I'm, I'm pleased that it's generated so much discussion. And, um, you know, I, I'm really excited that this uh, research is, is going on in so many places and other research labs around the, around the world right now. Well, I think it's generated so much discussion because of what's been going on around the world. So now uh, let me let me turn to Kevin. Um, so you authored a letter in Science just out with another a number of other luminaries in climate research uh, that casts at least raised some questions about this idea that Jennifer has just outlined in I think a very understandable way. And basically, the letter said it's an interesting idea, but other research you think doesn't confirm it, and so you're skeptical of it. So just to be clear. You agree that we've had a weird jet stream, but you just don't agree that it's necessarily linked to climate change. That's, I think that's right, yes. And in fact, there's a number of topics here we can visit in various ways. I'd like to come back to Arctic amplification and talk a little bit more about that. But let me begin by just saying a little bit more about the jet stream. And so this winter reminds me quite a bit of... 1976-77 and also 1977-78 winters where it was very cold in the east or um, in, in 76 and, and a little bit more into the center of the country in, in 77 and and so we've and it was also very much a drought situation in California in 76 uh, 77 so uh, and so this is not uh, new in in that regard and in fact, if we look back over the last uh, 50 years, we've got very good records of how the jet stream has uh, performed. We, we see that there are variations from year to year in the strength of the westerlies that we think are mostly related to natural variability. We have, we have names for this. We, we call it the, North, uh, uh, the northern annular mode or the Arctic oscillation are the terms that scientists often use for this. And we can run our climate models without any Arctic effects or uh, with constant sea surface temperatures. And we find that we get these periods where there are stronger westerlies or weaker westerlies without any external influences on the atmosphere whatsoever. In other words, it's a natural mode of variability in that regard. Uh, even with uh, climate change, my colleague uh, Clara Dessa has made use of what we call a large ensemble of runs uh, at NCAR with our climate model. So this is where the climate model has been run um, 36 times with almost exactly the same conditions except a very small change at the beginning. And we find that the variability in things like the jet stream from one year to the next, uh, from one run to the next, can be surprisingly large without any external influences whatsoever. And so the the main counter argument uh, to Jennifer at the moment is that a lot of this can simply happen through natural variability. In some years, the Arctic air gets bottled up and, and it doesn't penetrate uh, into middle latitudes much. When we have stronger westerlies, a stronger polar vortex, which is another term that's been introduced uh, to, the, to the general public at least, and in other years, it uh, it has uh, clear uh, more waviness. Uh, outbreaks of cold occur. Uh, in the last couple of years, it was in Europe. This year, it's certainly on the uh, on the east coast. Uh, and meanwhile, record warmth up in Alaska and so on. And so the question is, 
what is the role of the Arctic? It may have some role, but uh, in terms of nudging it in, in some direction, but the key point is that a lot of this can happen purely for natural reasons. Great. Well, that that seems to delineate the two views pretty well. And so now I guess I'll I'll go back to Jennifer and just say, I mean, Kevin's making clear, and this is true on many scientific issues, is that you have this natural threshold of variability and, and the burden for someone claiming something else is going on is to show clearly that what's happening is beyond that natural range. So do you feel that you're able to do that right now or or not? Well, um, not yet. Um, and I want to just reiterate that I in no way intend to mean that this year's pattern is caused by the Arctic or by any other particular factor, because I completely recognize that these kinds of patterns have happened before. Um, and they, you know, before climate change ever started of, of any sort, before the Arctic began to warm so rapidly. So I understand that very well. Um, I think one of the main challenges we're dealing with here in trying to verify or not this hypothesis is the fact that the uh, rapidly warming Arctic has really only been a detectable um, signal in the system really in the last decade, maybe decade and a half. And so literally we only have maybe 15 years when we might be able to detect any response of the atmosphere um, to this rapidly warming Arctic. And that response or that Arctic, um, the Arctic amplification that I mentioned right now is strongest in the fall and winter. We are seeing it starting to emerge in the other seasons as well. But um, right now it's really just the fall and winter that we're seeing um, enough of a signal there where we think we might be able to um, to see some response in the lower, in the mid-latitude um, atmosphere. But what we are seeing is we there's a lot of pretty tantalizing evidence that uh, our hypothesis seems to be um, some bearing some fruit or at least uh, seeing some evidence that it's true. For example, since 2007, we've seen a fundamental shift in the circulation pattern up in the Arctic itself. We see a very persistent um, ridge or a, a high heights in the atmosphere, uh, particularly in areas where the sea ice have been, has been lost. We see this in the fall and the winter especially. And what this says is that in, with our uh, very recent research that hasn't been published yet, it looks like this sea ice loss in particular areas is contributing to this very persistent pattern of high heights in the atmosphere, which are what are connected to um, these more wavy patterns um, that we're seeing around the northern hemisphere. So um, there's a lot still to learn, as I've, I've said over and over here, and I'll probably have to say it a few more times, but what I keep coming back to is the fact that we've lost 75% of the sea ice in the Arctic just in the last 30 years. I mean, this is just a humongous change in a very fundamental part of the Earth's climate system. And we are seeing evidence for things like fundamental changes in the Arctic's um, atmospheric pattern. And we're also starting to see evidence of these very large waves in the jet stream seeming to be occurring more often in the places where we'd expect them to occur, like in the North Atlantic, for example. This is a favorite place for what we call blocking patterns. We, there has been recent research by um, Elizabeth Barnes from Colorado State University showing that 
there is no detectable increase in blocking high patterns, but we are realizing that some of the, or many of the extreme events that have happened uh, in the last few decades really are not associated with blocking highs per se, but rather with other very wavy jet stream patterns, things like cutoff lows, which is kind of the opposite of a blocking high, and just large waves. And what we've been looking at lately is how those have been increasing, and we do see an increase in those sorts of patterns. Let me get Kevin to respond to some of this. I think that what Jennifer is highlighting is something that also in a recent National Academy of Sciences report on on abrupt climate change was highlighted, which was they said the change in the Arctic is an abrupt climate change happening right now. Um, so in other words, I, I think what she's saying is maybe maybe they can't fully prove it. But on the other hand, when you have this gigantic a change in one major part of the Earth's system, you would expect it to reverberate. Do you? I mean, do you agree with that logic? Even if you can't pin down exactly what's happening, you change one part, you're probably going to have knock-on effects. Well, it really comes down to whether the Arctic is playing a key role or whether it's the global climate change, something something more widespread in many respects. And I would uh, tend to take the second position a little more. But let me comment a little more on some of the things that Jennifer has said. Uh, she, she commented that there was a 75% uh, sea ice loss, and I'm assuming there she must be referring to the volume and, and the, uh, the decrease in, in thickness. Right. The biggest loss has certainly occurred uh, in the uh, late summer in September, uh, when there's about a 40% loss in extent. And, uh, and so in the fall, one can easily see that there are big changes in the sea ice. But in winter, certainly it's thinner, but the Arctic is full of ice in the wintertime. And it, it's hard to see that, you know, why there are such big changes in the winter uh, when, the, when the biggest changes in sea ice are in the, in the summer and the fall. So this is one of the uh, research questions, and, and this comes back then to what are the causes of Arctic amplification? And I would suggest that there's, um, there's several of them. One of them that I mentioned before was sort of natural variability, but there, there are some others. Uh, in, in terms of heating of the planet, we, we know uh, from the general behavior of the climate system that in the tropics, most of that heat goes into changing precipitation and the fluctuations in temperature are inherently a lot less in the tropics. But at high latitudes, the fluctuations are in temperature. And this has been true from, you know, even uh, through ice ages and so on, that all of the big changes in temperature at high latitudes and the big changes in precipitation are at low latitudes. So this is one of the reasons why we generally expect uh, Arctic amplification. This is not a new term in that regard. Jennifer did mention the, the ice, uh, what we call ice albedo feedback process, the, the fact that less ice uh, means that there's more uh, heat from the sun that uh, goes into the system. And so that's an important process. But another one is the structure of the atmosphere. The, the, uh, there tends to be a very strange temperature structure in the atmosphere, what is called a, a temperature inversion at high latitudes, especially in the, in the wintertime. Uh, and uh, all it takes is a little bit of wind, and you can mix that up and uh, cause quite substantial warming at the surface, but it, it, it's very shallow uh, and it doesn't extend through the depth of the atmosphere. And in fact, uh, it has 
these, the, this kind of warming has very little effect on the jet stream as such. And uh, it seems as though quite a lot of what is happening is related to this, this kind of change that is occurring. In other words, even a modest change in wind can cause quite large changes in the structure of the atmosphere in the, in the Arctic. And so rather than sea ice causing it, it may well be that, uh, that some of the changes that are going on are simply part of the changes in the atmospheric circulation that are being induced from elsewhere. And one of the regions that, uh, that we've looked at in considerable detail is the uh, whole of the Pacific Ocean, uh, which is a huge region, which is also undergoing some very striking changes. And we think that there are what we call teleconnections. There are some connections, there are some wave connections uh, into the Arctic, uh, and, and in fact also into the Antarctic. And in the Antarctic, it may be even causing a slight increase in sea ice uh, rather than the other way around. And so there are these other things going on, other factors that are, that are contributing to all of this that need to be sorted out. Let me just clarify that. Um, so I think what you're saying is that you're not sure that if there is a change in jet stream patterns, you're not sure it would necessarily be the Arctic. There's many other parts of the globe that are also changing. Uh, and that those, am I getting that right? That's, that's certainly a key part of it. And then the other argument is, is in wintertime, the Arctic sea ice change is, uh, certainly an extent, is relatively small. Uh, there may be some extra heat leaked from the Arctic through increasing cracks, leads in the ice, as they're called. But uh, any estimate of that is, is quite small. It's, it's very hard to explain physically how that can actually happen. And certainly nobody has been able to rep reproduce that in climate models at the current time. Okay. So, I mean, l let, me, let me turn to Jennifer. And, and I guess I actually, I solicited some questions for you guys. And one of them came from a, a prominent science blogger, Greg Gladen. So I'll sort of ask his question and also kind of make it, make it my own. I mean, clearly there's disagreement here, and you've, you've emphasized yourself that this position is, is not scientifically accepted fully by everybody, but it has gotten a lot of attention. What would it take for you to confirm or to refute it? I mean, you, how many more years do you need um, to see if the pattern keeps happening? Is that the way you do it? What, what is it going to take to really clarify all this? Before I answer that question, I'd like to address a couple of things that Kevin brought up here, and that is um, the causes of Arctic amplification. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, we are monitoring Arctic amplification very carefully, and what we see is that it's almost as large in winter as it is in fall. And it's also emerging from the natural variability in the summer and the spring as well. So we're starting to see the signals in summer and spring, but it's very strong in winter. And the reason is because Arctic amplification has many causes. We've talked a lot about sea ice. That's an obvious one. But it's turning out maybe it's not the most important one. There are others, and one in particular that doesn't get as much press is the fact that water vapor has increased a lot in the atmosphere in the Arctic, percentage-wise much more than it has um, on, in the globe overall. And that water vapor is a very important 
part, especially in the winter, because the winter atmosphere is very dry. So if you add more water vapor, you're not only increasing the greenhouse effect, because water vapor is a very powerful greenhouse gas, but also when that water vapor condenses into clouds, it releases latent heat. And this form of heat um, warms the atmosphere where that condensation happens. It's also the fuel that most, most storms rely on. And not only that, but when those clouds form, they are also very effective at trapping heat below them. And so we believe that the water vapor increase in the Arctic is probably the main factor why we're seeing such a large Arctic amplification in winter that's not directly related to the sea ice itself. So I think, um, you know, a lot of studies before now have looked at, as, as Kevin mentioned, looking at climate models, removing the ice, putting in more ice, and seeing how the atmosphere responds, and finding not a huge response because all of these other factors that contribute to Arctic amplification just aren't part of the story. So I think that's worth mentioning there. And I'd be, you know, the first to say that, yes, you know, the Arctic is not the only game in town here. There are many other factors that affect the jet stream. Um, we know the tropics are really the the dog that's wagging this, you know, it's not the tail, it's it's really the whole dog, and, and it's a very powerful influence on on the uh, the climate system. But that said, we know that, for example, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which, you know, pretty much everybody's heard of, I think, has been very neutral the last um, decade or so. We've had, you know, maybe one El Nino and predominantly La Niña's, and so it really hasn't been a major factor in the last decade or so. And then we have this other one, the, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which has a much longer time scale to it. It's pre pretty much been in a steady negative state for the last 15 years or so as well. And so those don't seem to be having, they're not undergoing a big change right now that would account for um, some of the large changes that we're observing in in the jet stream pattern. So um, getting back to the question that was asked here, how many more years would it take? Well, you know, one way to get at this, trying to figure out whether this hypothesis is true or not, is to just wait and until we accumulate more years in the real world in which Arctic amplification is getting stronger and stronger as global warming continues. How many more years will it take? That's hard to say. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, it won't take too many more at the rate we're going and the rate we're losing sea ice in the Arctic. Um, you know, we're, we're forcing the system pretty hard. But uh, I think a more fruitful line of research is going to be turning back to the models that Kevin was talking about, but figuring out a way to include and exclude the total Arctic amplification, not just the sea ice component, because as he said, that really just affects the fall and maybe early winter circulation pattern. And we have all these other reasons that are driving Arctic amplification in other seasons. Okay. Okay. Um, Kevin, do you want to throw anything in there? Otherwise, I have a, a, a new question for you. <laughs> Well, just uh, just briefly, yes. I mean, water vapor uh, is certainly important. Changes in cloud, and 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 those are playing a role. And but this this comes back to, uh, you know, what is the fundamental cause of that? Because those are really feedback processes. They go along with the changes in the atmospheric circulation, and uh, and they should be included in 
any models that are trying to uh, replicate this kind of thing. And so the key then is indeed to come back to uh, having a clear proposal as to what the mechanism is. And this might be done through further uh, what we call diagnostic studies of what's going on in the real world. Then uh, we have to be able to put those into climate models and and uh, replicate the response. Uh, and one of the difficulties at NCAR, we've, we've run uh, our climate models for a long time, and it takes a really long time, 50 years or something like that, to see a significant change in the atmospheric circulation in association with uh, climate change. We see very large changes in, in temperature and, and water vapor. Uh, even precipitation also tends to be quite noisy, but uh, the sea level pressure field is the one that I'm, I'm really referring to. Uh, it it has a lot of natural variability, and looking at any climate change signals in that, uh, it, it's very difficult to find unless something is missing in in the climate models. And so that comes back to the idea that you know if there is a, a process or a mechanism that uh, is proposed, uh, then indeed we need to be able to quantify it and uh, and replicate it with our climate models. That's the real test. Well, going forward, let's try to. Let's try to emphasize some areas where you might agree. I mean, Kevin, there's a, you know, there's a scientific side to this debate, but I think there's also a strong experiential side because all around the world people are saying with their guts um as well as their brains, what is wrong with my winter? And it's even become kind of a joke with a balmy winter in the Olympics <laughs> in Sochi, and I think that's why the media is paying so much attention right now. I mean, when people have all these intuitions that something isn't right, how much should we pay attention to that? Well, I, I, you know, <laughs> uh, this, this relates a little bit to the whole issue of people's views on whether global warming is happening. Uh, if if it's hot, then they say yes, and if it's cold, then they say no. Uh, you know, down in Australia, they've been is one place we haven't mentioned yet, but they've been having record uh, heat and uh, wildfires and uh, uh, you know tremendous responses. And also in Brazil, they've been having drought and and heat waves that are quite outstanding. And I think uh, in both of those cases, there are clear links to global warming that are, are exacerbating those kinds of conditions. Uh, in the case of the record high temperatures in Alaska and the drought in California, uh, the drought and, this, and the circulation may well be natural, but uh, when in drought situations is one where you expect that global warming has to make it a little more intense because there's a little bit of extra heat that has to go somewhere, so it dries things out and uh, increases the risk of wildfire. Uh, this is uh, a real worry as we move into the spring and then into the summer in California. The, the risk of wildfire is, is a major issue. Uh, and maybe this is a factor even in, in Sochi that, uh, you know, at least with regard to global warming, it's on the right side of things. The whole issue with regard to the cold, though, it, it's much harder to see how cold can be caused by global warming. And the main mechanism, as Jennifer has said, might be related to uh, the waviness in some sense in, in the atmosphere. But uh, the suspicion is also that a lot of that can come about for, for natural variability. And exactly what the global warming signal is doing to that is not altogether clear in, in my view at the moment. 
Well, I, I think we've we've gone a long way into this, and obviously we can't resolve it. Science has to. So, I mean, at this point, I think what I'll ask you both to do is just sort of wrap up. And I gave Jennifer the first word, so I'll give Kevin the last. And so that means I'll ask Jennifer first. Just start by concluding where you think we currently are in this debate and what you expect to figure out in the near future. And just, just now look on where things stand. Well, um, where do we stand? We, we have a lot of tantalizing evidence that suggests that um, the hypothesis that we've put forward may be right. And there's a lot of uncertainty still. There's a lot of, uh, we're still hoping to get more statistically significant responses to, uh, in, in, the kinds of things that we're looking for, um, or not. You know, we want to we want to figure it out whether it's happening or not. A lot of people are working on this, and I understand the um, the reluctance to to jump on board because it is a new idea and and we don't have proof of it yet. But I think we've got a lot of people all around the world now, kind of looking at this problem and attacking it from different ways. We included, and I think in the next few years we're going to get a lot of answers. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple things that um, Kevin said in this last time. Um, for one thing, the, the colder winters uh, in Eurasia in particular actually have, um, there has been some research identifying a mechanism why these colder winters in Eurasia um, may be actually true. And this is connected to sea ice loss and, and the resulting earlier snowfall on high-latitude land areas. This is work that Judith Cohen has been doing and showing that what, if you get that earlier snow cover on the high-latitude land areas, this does set up the pattern for a colder winter. And this is not the case in North America, however, because we don't have the sea ice loss just north of North America and in, in, uh, off of the Canadian coast. So we don't see that process happening here. But over there, there's a, I think there's pretty convincing evidence that we understand the mechanism that's going on. And just related to models in particular, um, the Arctic is probably one of the most challenging regions on the planet for climate models because of some of the issues that Kevin brought up related to these temperature inversions and cloud formation and all of these factors that are very, very important for getting the sea ice right, for getting the heat transfer right. And so it's, uh, we, I think we have some issues there that we still need to work out um, before we can have a lot of confidence in the models. But, um, you know, some of the past experiments that have been done with them have been done in a very different way from what we're looking at. They, as Kevin said, they're running many ensemble members, many model runs, um, averages over space and time. And so that's a very different kind of uh, approach to the one that we're looking at, which is taking day-to-day -day shape of the jet stream and seeing how that shape is actually changing over time. So I think, you know, these, there's a lot of different new approaches that are being uh, brought to bear on this issue, and I am very optimistic that in a very short order, we're going to have some more answers and um, fewer questions. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, it is, to me, just really fun to listen to a climate science debate that's a real debate, not a pseudo debate, because there's so many pseudo debates and nonsense around this. And here you guys are really talking about science and you're really trying to figure it out. And we appreciate that so much. So, Kevin, I'll just let you have the last word and just tell tell us where you think this is all headed. 
Well, I applaud uh, Jennifer for raising the the issue. It, it's certainly an important topic to understand uh, all of these extremes and the role of uh, of the human influence because that has implications for the future. That has implications for as we go further ahead. Uh, it it is amazing to see how much the media have jumped on this and have elevated this particular issue to the level that it is at and uh, and you know that's that's uh, well I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or not <laughs> they can't help uh, it I'm not sure either <laughs> <laughs> they can't help it. it's irresistible change my life that's for sure <laughs> I mean the, yeah. the the problem the problem with the empirical approach that that uh, Jennifer has been uh, dealing with is that uh, you have associations and, and correlations, but correlation is not causation, and the question is how you establish causation. Uh, she mentioned uh, Judah Cohen's work, and uh, again there, it's it's more uh, an association, uh, although there are some very good physical reasons that, that she mentioned. It's a bit like the lake effect that you get in uh, Buffalo, New York, when the uh, when the Great Lakes are ice-free, there's a tremendous amount of snow there, and there can be, with an open Arctic, uh, a lot of snow in Siberia uh, in, in adjacent areas. And it, it does indeed have some uh, real local effects uh, that are important. The question is whether that those kind of effects can become large enough to then influence the the whole of the northern hemisphere atmospheric circulation and and those questions are still open uh, and and certainly uh, in need of of more research to to understand all of those aspects and and so these are the challenges and i'm uh, uh, suspicious that the outcome will not be quite the, the way in which uh, Jennifer would like. I mean, if it would be happy uh, if, if there is a definitive answer and something does come out, but I suspect we're going to be stuck with the idea that, wow, there's a lot of natural variability that can occur in the system, and uh, we need to certainly understand that and be able to model it better in our climate models because the climate models are not as good as we would like at this point. And so if this leads to better climate models, then it'll all be a very good exercise. Okay. Well, on that note, like I said, we heard a real debate and there's a lot we don't know, but heck, that's science. That's how it works. And we're glad you guys are doing it. So, um, Jennifer Francis, thank you so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I think it was a, a really helpful discussion. And Kevin Trenberth, thanks for being with us as well. Yes. Thanks, Chris. This is a good program and I'm glad to see you doing this kind of thing. You know, Chris, it's really amazing to me that these models have become such an important part of climate science and that, you know, if you can get your model to show what's going on, that that really is taken as very solid evidence. It's a completely new way for me to think about doing the actual you know, doing of science. Well, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's all that they do. And actually, if you listen to climate skeptics, they think the models are nonsense and they don't listen to them. I mean, there's a huge amount of data going on in climate science, too. For example, temperature data measured from, you know, thermometer measurements all over the globe being crunched together to give us all those temperatures. So there's so there's both. Right. But, um, yeah, the models are where you use laws of physics written into computer code to try to show that you actually understand the system. And what's what I gather from the debate is that, you know, on the one hand, Jennifer Francis says she's got this this evidence that something's happening, but the but other people's models aren't showing it. And so naturally, they don't 
believe that it's happening. And you have to wonder whether the models don't have the the code written right or whether, you know, in fact, the models are a good reason to doubt what someone says that they're seeing. Yeah, I mean, that's what's really interesting to me about it is that, you know, you could just input a whole other variable into a model, perhaps, um, and, you know, get a different answer. Although, of course, I'm sure it's far more complicated than that. And that's a naive view. Um, but but it was just interesting to me that, you know, there that there is such a heavy, um, you know, and, and it, it makes sense that people really take these models very seriously, of course, because we can't take we can't look at all of the data when we're talking about something as as big as climate of the planet. Yeah, I mean, and again, the the reason that the models are so important is because you have big scientific institutions across the world, you know, Japan, United Kingdom, several places in the US that have, you know, super powered supercomputers and embedded in those computers and their programs is our state of the art understanding of the atmosphere and this is how we forecast weather too, right? So, I um, mean, it's not the same program, right? It's doing something different, but it but yeah, essentially all of the physics that we've understood, we've then written in code. And that's one of the chief ways that we figure out what's going to happen. The other thing I thought was really interesting is just how reasonable they both are. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that's good. this is a disagreement. And these are two people who are who are coming, you know, from opposite sides of an argument. And yet that was a very civil conversation and they both made very good points. And I have to say, walking away, I don't really know who's right. No, you don't. And and as a journalist, which I which I am, this is the kind of debate that you cover as a debate, which is what we're doing. It's not one where you say, oh, you know, weighted evidence is clear. Every scientific authority is spoken. All the scientists have signed off. There's no reason to indulge people who want to still debate this. There's that's one kind of story. I know that kind of story. This is not that story. And it's important to know the difference. But of course, one of the things I still worry about is because they both sound so reasonable and because there isn't a consensus that if you are at all, you know, in doubt of whether or not global warming is a thing and you're a climate denier, then you just throw up your hands and say, well, I don't understand this. So, of course, the whole thing must be wrong. Yeah, someone could say that. I mean, I after paying attention to this, I don't know that they could say that legitimately, but oh, I'm so sure that they would say that. Uh, I mean, beneath uh, this conversation, which contains differences, is a huge substrate of understanding and shared agreement. So to say that would be to be ignoring everything that they think is so uncontroversial that it's not even interesting to talk about, which includes the fact that global warming is happening and it's also happening rapidly in the Arctic. I mean, I don't think there's any disagreement about either of those. And it's also interesting to see that even when they do disagree, it's all about, look, we just need more data, not, you know, oh, you know, you've come at this in the wrong way. Right. That too. No, I mean, it's it's healthy and it's it's one we're going to have to watch alongside of the debate over why exactly the rate of warming might be a little slower these days. I would say that this debate, what's happening at the jet stream, those are the two actual really big debates right now that are going on in climate science. So we got one of them here. Yeah, it's great. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And please remember that this show is sponsored by Audible.com, and they're offering you a free audiobook or, of course, my lectures. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash Inquiring Minds for a free download. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, 
the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.